Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. Don't ever forget to raise your hand even when it seems really scary and you're not sure because I guarantee you, you will learn and grow to the greatest degree and become better human beings and better leaders as a result. My name is Spree Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I call it actionable empowerment. Every single episode, you'll hear the story of a fantastic woman in tech, from engineers to founders to investors to journalists to designers, all sorts of different females in tech who have thrived. I want to share their stories with you so that you can can know what resources, mentors, and life situations they accessed in order to get to where they are today. Enjoy. Our next speakers I'm so excited about. We've been prepping for a while. We have leading and respected experts in their respective fields. These three women are proving how the fourth industrial revolution requires fresh leadership skills and perspectives, and why women are poised to succeed as a result. In a conversation in collaboration with Pepperdine Center for Women in Leadership, under the brilliant guidance of Bernice Ledbetter sitting over here. We love Bernice. I'm pleased to introduce and welcome to the stage Britta Wilson, Vice President of Inclusion Strategies at Pixar Animation Studios, and a proud alumna at Pepperdine University for her MBA and doctoral degree. Britta, thank you. Next on stage, we have a wonderful person. Our second speaker is Allison Lewis, Chief Marketing Officer at Johnson & Johnson. Thank you, Allison. Welcome. And our third speaker is Delana Brand, Vice President of People Rewards and Experiences from Twitter. prepping for this for a while. It's exciting to finally have everyone all together. So I'm going to see if I can get this straight, just to contextualize everything for everyone out here. We're going to start with Twitter. Okay. Twitter connects people and thoughts around the world, and it is redefining the way we experience and discuss information in real time. Here are the stats that got me. On average, every second, around 6,000 tweets are tweeted. Mm -hmm which corresponds to 350,000 tweets per minute, yep. 500 million tweets per day, and around 200 billion tweets per year. Yeah, absolutely. Just to give you guys a little context, Allison, yes. and I know we've, we've decided we'd grapple with this final statistic. It's actually a little bit low. Over 1 billion consumers buy Johnson & Johnson products daily. They interact with your healthcare products, services, and initiatives around the globe. But one of the things I love during our conversation is that your legacy organization that's over 130 years old, eight of the original 14 employees back in that time were women. That's right. And to this day, Johnson & Johnson still has a lot of senior executive women walking the halls. Absolutely. 
That's saved you for last. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that gets a round of applause. 30 years ago. Yeah. That's pretty good. That is really good. Greta, our reigning alum. Yay. Pixar has created some of the highest grossing animating films of all times, totaling billions of dollars. So we're going to give this one up. If you guys love some of these films, give a few applause. Mm -hmm. Finding Nemo films. Oh, yes. A favorite. Coco. Yes. Toy Story 3. Oh, yes. yes. And most recently, one of my faves, The Incredibles 2. Mm. <laughs> so these films have reached audiences around the globe. And they're communicating differently. What's special about them is that they're speaking to people young and old. Mm -hmm. They communicate universally. Thank so just to provide a little context about what these women do with their days, it's pretty outstanding. So what's it like being a part of organizations that have that level of reach, that sort of global appeal? I'm just curious from your perspectives. Well, for me, and you gave the stats, it's, it's like incredibly humbling and rewarding to work for an organization that is so integral to people's lives. Um, every day people come to Twitter to share their experiences, to have conversations, um, sometimes critical conversations. Um, but we believe the mission of the organization is that through those conversations, we can change the world. And it's, it's humbling to be a part of that. Done the right way, it's super impactful. So I'm, I, I feel truly blessed to be a part of it. And, and I would build on that. I mean, I think all of us would feel like it's a great privilege and privilege to work for these organizations, and we're humbled every day by the impact that we can have. I mean, for me, sort of, I'm not new to big companies. I worked at Coca-Cola for a long time, so big globally scaled businesses. But the key is, even within these big businesses, to really be anchored in purpose. And so, you know, when I think about Johnson and Johnson, and we talk about our purpose, it's this whole idea of, you know, heart science and ingenuity to change the trajectory of healthcare for humanity, which is incredibly inspiring, but also something that we have to hold up every single day in everything that we right. do. And I think that's something that as leaders we can never forget because we all came, all of our businesses came from very purposeful places. As you get bigger and bigger and bigger, to not lose sight of that is really important. So students up in the mez, this yes. purpose-driven leadership that we're being taught, Yes. That's the type yes. of organization we want to work with. I would echo that. I would simply plus everything. I think for us, story is king, queen, and the royal court. And the way that we look at story is a way for us to transform the way that you see the world. So by a quick show of hands, who saw Coco? Yes, I love you all. Thank you. And the beauty of Coco for us, if I can for a moment, it was the first time that Pixar told a culturally competent story. And we took a lot of time and a lot of research to ensure authenticity in that. But the outcome of that was is that we had people who were in culture um, participants who were of the Mexican or the Spanish um, culture who literally thanked us. Twitter was full of tweets Absolutely. where they were thanking us for a film that finally represented them and portrayed them in a positive way. So we know that story can really transform the belief systems and how people then therefore interact. And that was actually happening just really quickly. We released Coco at a time that our country was really looking at immigration in a new way. And so there was a lot of negative representation that was happening. So as Coco was being released, it, it really did change the narrative. So we take that very seriously with our stories and try to ensure authenticity. That's awesome. So this entire day is sort of rooted in the notion of the fourth industrial revolution. And Pepperdine has really 
done a great job of making sure humanity is front and center. So I want to look at what each of you think about that, but then more importantly, are you techno-optimist or techno-pessimist? Techno-optimist? I would say I'm, oh, can I hop in here? Yeah, go ahead. Hop in. I would say I'm a techno-middleist. <laughs> is that a word? Centralist. Okay, centralist, a centralist, a middleist, a realist. Um, I think that if you think about the way that the techno-optimism and then the techno-pessimism um, is defined, it tends to be playing, in my mind at least, the, the outer reaches of it, right? It's If you're an optimist, tech, technology will save the world and everything that is good comes from it. If you're a pessimist, right, technology is killing the world and we're all going to die with iPhones in our hand. Um, I tend to think that there is great things that can come from the use and the application of technology and platforms, but I think that we have to maintain the humanity of it and that humanity is the connections, it's the relationships, it's the amalgamation of our life's experiences that I don't know that technology completely captures. So therefore, Britta sits in the middle of that as a centralist. centralist. A <laughs> something. So I would say, I'll pay, take the optimist position. I'm okay. not just leaving the pessimist for you. Yeah. <laughs> you can still be an optimist or a centralist. But um, I'll take the optimist position and I'll, I'll say that if you look over time, technology always has been sort of an advancer of Absolutely. humanity. There's no question about Absolutely. it. But to your point about the, the more centrist, middleist position, you know, there's always a bumpy road as you go through it. And I think you talk about um, humanity and, and I'll talk about empathy, I think, and I'll put it in more of a marketing sense and sort of what I do every day. You know, technology provides greatness in terms of things like precision or personal marketing because Absolutely. all of a sudden with technology I can send both of you, you know, and you the right message at the right time, um, which I've never been able to do before. So as an example, you know, if you don't suffer from allergies, why are you getting a Zyrtec allergy, you know, right. message? But right. if you do suffer from allergies, yes, bring it on because I will do anything to help these allergies that I'm facing right now. This notion so, of personalization. Yeah, this exactly. notion of yeah. personalization. But at the same time, back to empathy and humanity, you know, there's things such as ad blockers. And, you know, as an industry, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about, well, should we stop the ad blockers? And I have a point of view, which is no, we shouldn't stop the ad blockers because the ad blockers are coming because you're not doing a good job of the marketing. And so you're not being empathetic. You're not actually delivering the right message. You might be delivering a message to the right person, but it might not be the right message. And that's where sort of the empathy needs to come in and recognize that some of these things that come up from a technology standpoint is because we're not doing a good enough job and that's kind of where we've always got to come at a place of technology's good, but empathy against that end user of it and what they're experiencing right. and continuously improving. And that's a commitment we have to make. Otherwise, you know, people will opt out. And opting out is actually okay if, as an industry, we're not doing a good enough right. job. So optimists, but with a empathy is critical <laughs> right. with success yeah. with any technology, Absolutely. I believe. Yeah. And Delana, where do you sit on the spectrum? Well, I think since we've defined a spectrum, <laughs> yes. um, I'm probably right in between yes. you two, quite, quite honestly, leaning more towards the, the optimism side of things. And as you both have uh, very well articulated, I'd, 
uh, technology without humanity yes. is, 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 is fruitless. Um, and that's where sort of uh, trouble lies for us. And you can't take the, the human beings out of that. And I look at, so if we talk about sort of this being the fourth industrial revolution, we've been through three and humans have always found a way to evolve to lean on the greater good by leveraging technology. And I believe that this will, will be the case as well. So we just have to sort of keep those uh, blind spots in mind and, and keep ourselves honest around trying to do the right things with it. But it can right. be incredibly impactful and powerful uh, if we do it the right way. And looking at the notion of AI and knowing that it's going to have such a deep impact, I wanted to ask specifically, what does the impact of AI look like on each of your various sectors? So we have healthcare, we have tech, we have the motion picture industry. What does AI look like to your various industries? Well, I mean, tech is AI. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's synonymous from that perspective. So um, the, the, the sort of use of AI, robotics, et cetera, it's, it's inherent in, in all technology companies, but now has moved over to, to many other industries um, and, and organizations as a whole. And I, I believe that, um, this is one of the, the spaces, you know, from an inclusion and diversity perspective um, that I'm, I'm quite honestly very concerned about. And we talked about just previously sort of keeping humanity right. um, in, involved. Um, the bias uh, that we know exists uh, with the use of AI, I think, is a real challenge for organizations and one that we're going to have to really deal with and making sure that um, we have diverse people at the table participating and that we are checking those biased blind spots, mm -hmm. uh, as I just talked about, to, to make sure that we're doing the right thing. So again, incredibly impactful, incredibly powerful, um, and inherent in everything that we, we're gonna be doing going forward. I mean, there's not an industry, quite honestly, that won't be touched by AI to the extent that it's not already, uh, but there are some things that we need to keep top of mind. Well Particularly said. impactful in healthcare or well, yeah, entertainment. In, in healthcare, I mean, it, it you know, AI technology, um, AI is technology. It is really about sort of diagnostics and you know all the way through to precision medicine. Now, I don't work on the pharmaceutical side of the business, so I won't talk about that. But I can talk about sort of the side of the business that I sit in, which is the consumer side. And you know, diagnostics are things like what we unveiled over the last two years at CES, which is super exciting. So we had 10 years of sort of skin research. So you could read, you know, pore size, wrinkles, um, moisture levels, all the things that, you know, we're very interested in as uh, women who are, you know, continuing to age every year beautifully. Um, but we had all these great diagnostics, but, you know, all this insight, but in t without technology, we actually couldn't link it to human beings. And we actually couldn't take this to a place where you went, okay, I'm helping human beings right. back to my heart science and ingenuity. But with in, uh, the advent of technology, we can take all those 10 years of research, connect it with something that we call Neutrogena 360, which is a, a diagnostic, a, a scanner that goes over your phone that you can then personally measure your moisture, pore, wow. and wrinkle level. I didn't know that. Very cool, yes. <laughs> and then get- Sign us all up. Yes. yes. And then get- One second, what's the name of that? <laughs> Neutrogena 360. Order it at Neutrogena.com. But then you can um, you can actually get a marketing person. Yeah, I'm a marketing no, person. Exactly, marketing, marketing and sales. <laughs> but then you can get a personalized recommendation on what you do. Um, and we've taken that actually even to the next level. This year at CES, we unveiled Mask ID, which is recognizing that you might have different. Your skin might need different things at different places on your face. So use your skin scanner, and then it'll 
3D print a specific face mask for you, those, those, those paper face masks, with different actives on different places on the mask so that you can, again, get exactly what you need. You know, so that's personalized diagnostics and personalized products that we're bringing forward to you. And I think that's the amazing thing of what right. technology yeah. can bring. And so you take that all the way through to you know, personalized medicine, and it's a whole different world, which is not my expertise, but you get a bit of an idea right. in terms of what technology can provide in terms of that diagnostic and personalization. So exciting stuff. Neutrogena 360. Neutrogena 360. She's all over it. Note to self. If I had my phone here, it'd be an Amazon product. You'd be ordering it, yes. Um, so clearly Pixar, you know, we're the combination of technology and art and storytelling, right? And so we couldn't be where we are without the technology. It's the technology that's driven the stories to make them be photorealistic so that when you see Miguel and Coco, you feel like that's someone you know. You see without the Neutrogena 360, the blemishes on our characters' faces. Yes. Um, so we couldn't thrive, we couldn't exist without technology. I think for us and for the entertainment industry in general, it's finding that link of humanity, right, that continues the storytelling but allows it to be augmented by the outcomes and the analysis that you get from the data or get from the technology. I think for most of us in the entertainment industry where story is so critically important, where we would get the most lift is, I feel like I have my backs to you guys, sorry, I feel like where we would get the most lift is being able to um, put data and analytics to the emotional arc of story. While it wouldn't replace the story necessarily, it would help us augment what are the impact points in the story. So where do we need to have a character do this versus that in the story? So we, we wouldn't exist without it. Incredible. So Allison, I want to ask you a specific yes. question. What particular mindsets and competencies associated with women are most needed to help usher in this change? Yeah. So I do think women in general are more empathetic. And I think we've talked a lot about humanity and empathy being critical to accompany you know, technology and AI. So that's one thing I think that's super important. I think another area is just collaboration. I mean, the thing that um, I find is my work today and the different groups that I have to collaborate with is so different from what I was doing five years ago and right. even 10 years ago. Um, and so collaboration is something that I think you know, we, we need more of. And I think you know, women are particularly good at, at collaboration. And then the final thing is, I'd say, ambiguity. Um, and we're in sort of a world where there's a lot of ambiguity and you don't really know where the future is going. You have to sort of take leaps of faith. You have to be comfortable with that. And again, I, I think women are very good at operating with ambiguity um, and sort of it came from, I guess, a world where, you know, skilled at multitasking and managing the ambiguity of multitasking constantly. So I think some really interesting things that um, women have tended to have more traits against. Now, that's not to say men don't have those traits either. Right. I want to be clear, but I do think there's a skew that way on well, collaboration. Well, and the speed in which things are changing now. Right. It's exactly. no longer a cycle that's five years. Absolutely. It could be daily. Exactly. Things are turning on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was the point that, that, that I want to, to really echo. When you think about the speed and, and, the, and the pace of change, that multitasking yes. capability that you talked about that women have had to do uh, for, for eons and generations. I mean, that's a skill that really they have the ability to, to, to now leverage and have that be truly valued. 
and, and PM skills, right? Mm -hmm. in, in terms of in terms of tech. Um, but I love how you've articulated sort of the connection between yes, we're going to have all these technical skills that are going to be needed in the future, but the technology can't contemplate and run itself. Right. And if we are going to eliminate some of the biases that exist, leaning on that empathy and leaning on that sort of um, framework around collaboration uh, are things that I think women are uniquely positioned to do. Yes. Great point. And then just to continue on, Delana, we know that tasks are sort of deconstructing and reconfiguring. It's a changing landscape. Mm -hmm. What opportunities do you think will present for women that may not have even existed five years ago? Yeah, I think it's a continuation of the last conversation, right? So all the changes that are happening um, in the workforce and, and sort of thinking uh, forward about what work will look like, um, the roles that exist today won't exist anymore. I think we're already uh, well into the gig economy. We've all heard about that. And so the concept of freelance work is becoming um, more and more prevalent and pop another opportunity, I think, for women to take control and to lean into having some of the flexibility that they haven't been able to have in the past. Uh, so that creates a whole host of opportunities for them to have careers on their terms, their way, and, and redefining things um, in, in many aspects. I do think, though, that um, to address some of the challenges that we talked about, and again, making sure that the connection to humanity remains uh, in this, this new revolution, we do need more women in the tech space. Absolutely. We, we absolutely yes. need, so that's for all the, uh, yes. the, the students at the top. We absolutely need more women in STEM um, taking on these, these critical roles, being the ones to make some of the decisions about what that next generation of technology is going to look like. And then I think, um, back to what we, we just sort of talked about, um, there will have to be roles um, that are not technical, that bring human insights to bear uh, in ways that they haven't had in the past. And I, and I, again, echo some of the previous comments around, I think women are uniquely positioned to, to do that. So a focus on STEM, really leaning into and taking advantage of, of sort of this new gig and freelance economy and, and thinking about all the roles uh, around sort of medicine and other places um, that won't be sort of absent a need to, to have human insights are, are ways that women can, can really step up. Yeah. Britta. Yes. Will innovation drive gender equality or will gender equality drive innovation? That's a good question. And how will diverse representation play a role as an innovation driver? So will innovation drive gender equality or will gender equality drive innovation? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? How? I don't know that they're an either or. Okay. I would submit that it's an and. Right, and I would submit that it's an and because in order to really innovate, you need to have the diversity of perspectives. And without that, your innovation ecosystem will be stymied, right? And so you have to have the diversity, be it gender, race, ethnicity, visible, invisible, et cetera, to start to drive that innovation. And then I think once that happens, once you've created a space for people to feel like they belong and they can plug in, then the outcome of that is also more innovation, I think. I think that the representation piece is critical because, um, again, those voices need to be at the table, those voices need to be contributing. And if, in, in, in any ecosystem, you have to have some type of external source 
to have an impact. And so if you think about the innovation ecosystem in your own organizations, without that external source, what is that source that you're missing? So what is the diversity element that you're missing? And that can be what's augmenting your ecosystem where it might be absent today. So I don't know that it's an either or, to be honest. An with you. It's an yeah. ant. There we go. I'm just right in the middle of everything today. <laughs> <laughs> I liked, there was a quote that was saying, diversity is simply being invited to the party, yeah. mm -hmm. but inclusion's being asked, asked to, to dance. dance. And belonging is hearing your song play. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Perfectly said. <laughs> well said. Allison, mm -hmm. how does your work promoting women in leadership connect to opportunity for women in your organization and around the world? I know you're very big into not only mentorship, but sponsorship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, I do a lot of mentorship, but I mean, back to the, the sponsorship and um, discussion. At the end of the day, to really put people into roles and have that advancement happen, mentorship isn't enough. It has to be sponsorship. You need a sponsor to take a bet on you. You need a sponsor to put you forward, to right. stick their neck out. And I think we can all agree that at some point, somebody took a big bet on us. You don't, you don't sit in roles that we sit in with nobody ever taking a bet on you. They took a bet. And, and we all rose to the occasion, so that person made the right bet, but that is the, the idea of sponsorship. I, I think more broadly, when you ask about what, what am I doing, so yes, there's a lot of stuff internally mm -hmm. that, that we do to help support women, um, You know, things like offering breast milk shipping, which I will tell you, if they'd had that, when I had children, I, I would have continued breastfeeding. Um, they didn't, but I mean, we offer that for our women, so that if they're traveling internationally, if they're traveling in the US, whatever, they can continue to nurse and send their breast milk home. And for any of you that have had children and breastfed or any of you that know people that have had children and breastfed, that's like liquid gold. So you don't want to waste an ounce of that. You definitely want to ship that home. So those are things that we're doing. And then more broadly, I'll say that I think things that I do industry-wise, which I think help promote women, are things like, you know, we just launched as part of the Association of National Advertising, an industry group with, you know, CMOs from all over, um, you know, the world, this whole idea of see her, which is mm -hmm. hashtag see her, and we've rolled out the gem score, which is all about a metric that allows us to see how are we doing in eliminating stereotypes in advertising. And so that's the role that we actually play and where I can use business for good because I can see am I making the right progress in terms of portraying women in STEM as an example and not putting them into roles that are sort of traditional gender stereotypes. And you'd be amazed when you actually start to measure that you find that unintentionally you have actually put Absolutely. women into stereotypical roles. Um, so we started with women and we will be expanding that over time to include all groups, so race, um, as well as religion, as well as um, sexual orientation, again, because there's bias that happens all over the place. And we, as an advertising industry, actually have a really big voice right. and a lot of power to make a difference. So we're doing that in, in partnership with a bunch of Fortune 500 companies from around the world. And it's pretty exciting to see the, the change that we're making. So this notion of if you can see her, you can be her. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Going back to this idea of mentorship and sponsorship. Yes. We have students here yes. with us. Yes. How would they go about figuring that out? They're new to a company, new yes. to a job. It might even be their first job. How do they find someone to mentor them and sponsor them? 
Yeah, so that's a that's a tough one. I mean, yeah. the, the mentorship is easier because I think you can, you know, be very proactive in sort of, you know, getting those mentors. And it's often people that you admire at work and you ask, you know, can you can you have a coffee with me? Can you meet with me, you know, uh, during your 20 minutes of drive time or whatever? And and people will agree to that. I mean, you'd be amazed. I mean, I don't think you guys would agree with me that you never say no when somebody asks you for that. You figure out a way to do it. You you want to help. So so that's easier. Be to bold do. enough to ask. Yes, yeah. be bold enough to ask. Sponsorship is a little bit more that's difficult different. because it's not like, you know, and I've had people ask me before, you know, would you be my sponsor? But the reality is I can't be your sponsor if I don't really know you mm -hmm. deeply. So what I have found through my career is my greatest sponsors have actually been my managers. Mm -hmm. um, so the people that I've worked for who have really gotten to know me and understood the value that I can bring, and then they inevitably move into other roles and I move into other roles, but they're the ones that continue to stick their necks out for me and really stand up for, hey, Allison can go do this. You should take a chance on her. So really, those managers, I would say, and I'd be curious as to these women's perspective, are the ones that are so critical in terms of making sure they understand you, making sure they know the value. And, and quite frankly, it means doing a good job, you know, over-delivering every single day. And then you will build that sponsorship around you. So I, I agree. Um, you, and you have to do a good job. You, you, you have to show up and, and, and over deliver from that perspective. It's got to be someone who knows your work and is connected to, to what you're doing and can see the impact. I, I got a piece of career advice uh, really, really early on um, that has lended itself to be very true and, and, and very important for my career. And it was very simply, know who's in the room. And so when you think about looking for mentors and sponsors, um, every organization has sort of a different way of, of sort of calibrating around talent and assessing performance, et cetera. You need to know who's in that room, who's making those decisions, and make sure that if it's not your manager and there are others, that you start to forge a personal relationship with them and you get, in a very organic um, and natural way, you get to elevate and, and demonstrate your, your work to them. Uh, because ultimately, again, that's how the decisions get made with, with that team or, or, or that group of individuals. And so you want to make sure that you have access and they can see the great impact that you can make. The only thing I would add to that that's a distinction that I think people sometimes miss is not only is it your manager, but it's somebody who's already charted the path. Yes. And so they're a path clearer for you and they can provide air cover for you. So if you're not quite sure what happens at this level in an organization, a mentor can provide that construct or that framework to help you navigate it versus a mentor, I'm sorry, a sponsor can versus a mentor who can oftentimes be a peer level. Yes. But you definitely have to perform and, and outperform because it's not only your brand that's at stake, it's right. theirs as well. And I think that's a, one of the most important things to remember. Great words of advice, thank you. Yeah. This is for anyone on the panel. What are some of the initiatives that each of your companies are doing to prepare leaders and staff for the future of our workforce? I think for us, I'll jump in here quickly, um, for us at Pixar, what we really try to be intentional about is being intentional and not just be you know, scattered with our intentions around inclusive leadership and what's required for inclusive leadership. Because we come from the premise of we can bring and introduce all the diversity in the organization that we want, but without inclusion and espousing inclusive behaviors and people having those experiences, 
diversity just becomes tokenism at that point. And so as we think about how diverse the workforce will be as, as it is now and will continue to be, we're really preparing our leaders to be intentional about how they lead. How do they show it with curiosity? How do you engage in a collaborative way? How do you respect people of difference? And so we're really taking the inclusive leadership platform as what we're building our, our future skills on. And Delana, how do we use women to help develop AI and various tools that reduce biases rather than reinforce them? Yeah, I, I think it starts with having women in those roles. Uh, you know, back to our, some of our earlier uh, points about having more women in, in science and, and, and technology and, and being the ones who are on the teams actually either developing the technology or doing the testing uh, and assessing for implications of, 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 of bias. Um, even if it's not contemplated in actual careers, I think that um, there are ways to leverage the existing workforce to get pulled into some of those things uh, with, with the technical teams. And so leveraging uh, employee resource groups uh, or business resource groups um, up that are full of women who want to be a part of the change and the solution, pulling them in to, to look at the prototypes and to look at some of the, the new ideas and getting their, their perspectives. And that's not just for women. I would say do that for right. all spectrums across sort of diversity to make sure we're elevating all voices and making sure that we're looking for um, again, those blind spots that show up in places, mm -hmm. yeah. And Britta, how can women help create more trust in corporate environments since we're seeing such an erosion of that? We're seeing an erosion of trust, my word. <laughs> can you imagine? I know, I just told everyone a big secret. Who knew? Oh, no. Well, you know, I, I think we've talked about it, right? So we've talked about compassion, and we've talked about empathy, and we've talked about being other-oriented. And I think that for women and for all of us, you know, when we achieve a certain level, it's our responsibility to lower the ladder. It's our responsibility to continue to be knowledge seekers and truth tellers and listeners. And so I think, you know, there's... Um, I've got him, I forget his name, Dr. Zach, who is a scientist and a professor and scientist at Harvard, and he was able to identify a correlation between oxytocin in the brain and your ability to feel your ability to feel like you're in a trusted environment. And so when empathy is high and the oxytocin is, is really developing and manifest, you feel safe. And when you feel safe, you therefore feel trust. And so I think and the thing that causes that to decrease is stress, right? So the opportunity for us all as leaders is to figure out how to turn the volume up on empathy and compassion and humanity, as we've talked about, and how to turn the volume down on stress and creating constructs for people that are uncomfortable, be it forced work schedules or lack of flexibility. And so I think that's something that women have a, a leaning towards, but not exclusively own. And part of that is telling a new story. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Who is responsible for telling these new societal stories? Whose job is that? I think we all are. All of we us. All are. Yeah, we I think all we all are. Yeah, I think absolutely. that when we abdicate the storytelling, then we abdicate the outcomes associated with That's it. Right. And so I think we all have to own our own stories and we all have to inform. I believe that beliefs inform behavior. And so the way that we change behavior is by changing our belief system. Right. And those belief systems are rooted in stories. Right. And so if we really want to have a change, we all have a responsibility to tell yeah. stories that do so. I think we have a responsibility to definitely tell stories. And, and, but that, that advocacy piece of things, mm -hmm. I think absolutely. we absolutely have a responsibility to making sure that we're sharing other stories and making sure that other people uh, have their voices be heard and that they have an opportunity to, um, uh, to, to really share their perspectives and, and their voices. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, we just heard that staggering statistic of 200 billion tweets yeah. per yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a lot of stories being told. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So just to sort of sum up what's mm -hmm. been said today, I'm going to rephrase it and put it into Grazia Dio's context. So Grazia Dio's new mission is to create best for the world leaders, not just best in the world leaders. How does that align with your thinking and your organization's philosophies? So I really love that because there's sort of two elements that come uh, front and center for me when, it, when I hear that. And, and one is, is sort of like the importance of impact um, and then also sort of this concept of sort of servant leadership, right? And both are, um, that's sort of my core values and, and, how I, and how I operate. I don't do anything uh, in life without trying to think about how I'm going to improve it and make it better and the legacy and the impact that I'm going to, that I'm going to have. And I think back to sort of Twitter and, and its purpose, again, the goal is not to have, you know, a, a billion plus users on, on the platform just for the sake of having those, those voices be on the platform. It is because we absolutely 100% believe that through healthy conversation uh, and debate, uh, people can break down perceptions and barriers, um, and those conversations can ultimately help us get to a better place, and the world can be more positively impacted by it. So um, a complete alignment, I think, with where Grazio is going and, and my personal sort of uh, perspective on things. And that's a nice segue. As we look at things that go beyond the bottom line, how might women help lead initiatives that are better for social and environmental impact that aren't just about managing for the bottom line? So I think, again, it comes down to the why does a business exist? I mean, most of our business exists not ultimately for the bottom line, but to actually make people's lives better. And, you know, I, I connect that back to Johnson & Johnson has something called the credo. You guys may have studied it um, in, in business school, but it's essentially this whole idea that when Johnson & Johnson was going public 76 years ago, Robert Wood Johnson was really nervous about, wow, the values of this company are going to be destroyed by you know, a publicly traded company because it's all about those quarterly earnings and you know, getting to that bottom line. And so he wrote down sort of what the values of the company were, which at the end of the day were about do the right thing for people, for human beings, and the bottom line will follow, share on a value will follow, but always make your decision based on the right thing, whether it's employees, whether it's the community in which you operate, whether it's healthcare providers, but always make that right decision. And I think that's something that we can all align to, which is if we stay true to that, we will always do the right thing and operate with a level of empathy, which you know ties together what we've been talking right, exactly. a lot about, which is empathy and humanity. And just to sort of put a different face on that, yeah. how might women leaders help contribute in totality to this notion of a happier, healthier, and safer people and work environment? So again, I think a lot of what has happened over the last 10 years is much healthier sort of company and employee policies around work-life balance or work-life blend. Does that exist? Yeah, well, is there such a thing? There is not such a thing as work-life balance. It's about being comfortable in the choices that you make. Okay, I feel better and, now. And knowing that you have to draw the line in certain places. So yes, work-life balance doesn't exist, but work-life blend can exist. And you've got to get super comfortable. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, companies can put things into place that allow for that to happen. And I'm sure we have lots of examples we could talk about where our companies are doing great yeah. things in that area. Yeah, so, I, I would just add that I, I think that um, 
the concepts of transparency yes. and, and having these conversations uh, breed sort of accountability and trust and, and that leads to I think a happier and healthier environment. Uh, again, I think women are uniquely positioned to, to lead in, in this particular front in their organizations and making sure that they're being as transparent as possible uh, with employees, stakeholders, et cetera. Yeah. I just want to piggyback on the transparency. I, I think that there's a piece of authenticity and vulnerability that goes along with that because I think for so long we've bought this myth of work-life balance, mm -hmm. right? So we've bought the right. We've bought the myth that if we climb the ladder, we have to perform in a certain type of way. And so, in addition to the things that these wonderfully bright women have said, I think the piece of authenticity and and being vulnerable, you know, yes. letting people see the warts and the flat spots, yes. right? That would be before the Neutrogena 360. <laughs> <laughs> so as we start to close down our wonderful conversation, I want each of you to talk to these guys out here and answering. You know we have current leaders, people that are running organizations in the audience, and we have future leaders. What would you say to each of them if you had to leave them with the most important piece of advice today for their success in embracing the future? No pressure, Britta. No I know, pressure. Right. Everybody's looking at me. Um, I would say, I would say, revoke the credentials that you have allowed and granted to fear and anxiety and worrying about what others are doing and be focused on yourself and what the opportunities are and the gifts that you have in order to achieve them. Wonderful. Well said. Gave you that one oh. for free. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'll, I'll go next because yeah. it, it actually is, is a similar piece of advice. There's, there's a quote that, that says, when, when you sort of accept fearlessness, um, then your life becomes limitless. And I, I really believe when you sort of think about all the change, the technology and everything that's happening and all sort of the, uh, the rapid types of um, things that will be coming at us, uh, if we lead with not being afraid and, and really lean into those and accept new challenges, accept new opportunities, um, even if you don't get it right the first time, even, even if you mess up and, and, and fail, those things, they build you. Um, and those new opportunities and experiences lead to the next set of things. And so just embrace all the craziness that's happening right now, because uh, it, it will be. Embrace the crazy. Yeah, embrace, yes. the crazy embrace the crazy. And, and don't, be, don't be fearful. That is interesting because we probably collectively have you know, 80 to 90 years of experience working, I would say. And there's a theme. What I was going to tell you guys is to raise your hand. And why I say raise your hand is because it's when you put yourself in a situation where maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable, maybe you're a little bit vulnerable, maybe you don't have the answer, you don't know what you're doing, that's when you learn and grow and develop the most and become limitless. And so don't ever forget to raise your hand even when it seems really scary and you're not sure because I guarantee you, you will learn and grow to the greatest degree and become better human beings and better leaders as a result. Amazingly said. I think we have time for a few quick questions. I can't see you all very well, but is there anyone from upstairs or down that has a question? Please. Yeah, so my question is Can you let us know your Jean name? Uh, Patricia Murray. Thank you. Uh, so my question is around um, inclusivity in advertising. So obviously I think, thank you. Obviously I think that um, the advertising that we see in California is become much more inclusive over the last couple of years. I'm just wondering how much geotargeting you do in your messaging to other geographies where that inclusiveness may not be as well accepted. Are most of your ads the same nationwide, or are you doing a lot of 
changing the message according to the audience. We're doing a lot more precision targeting. I mean, that's the, the beauty of um, what programmatic has brought. Um, if you look at it in the US now, about 80 to 90% of the media, media is precision targeted with a personalized message and the same thing internationally, although more on the digital front, about 60% is personalized. Um, in terms of inclusiveness, I think that's where I'll tie back to you know, what we're doing to hold ourselves accountable. And as we've implemented this GEM score, part of that ANA See Her initiative, um, what we're learning is that actually we aren't always, always as inclusive as we think. Totally unintended, but creating the awareness. So often we'll see that, wow, we're only putting males in this advertising. Why are we only doing that? You know, and that's changed. Now we are putting females in the advertising. So again, holding ourselves accountable to drive inclusiveness and across an industry, which is pretty exciting in terms of the changes that we're standing up for and will continue to stand up for. So I think you'll see more and more and more inclusiveness. But definitely the world is moving towards more precision targeting and personalized messaging. There's no question about it. Is there anyone in the mezzanine that you can get a microphone? Anyone that has a question up there? Yes, hi. Hello, this is Stacy Gordon, and I am um, founder of Rework Work, and the question that I have is around the idea of the fact that today is equal pay day for women, and so I'm just wondering, we've talked about the fact that in AI, that there is such a, a way for us to create new jobs. What advice would you give to the business owners in the, uh, and to the leaders in the audience to be able to make sure that we are uh, providing these new jobs at equal footing for women as we move forward? Yeah, you just you need to make it happen. Uh, quite quite honestly, I'm I'm proud that uh, Twitter um, is an organization that believes in equal pay uh, for equal work, and and our employees are are paid equitably. And I think that you have to be diligent and very focused as roles evolve and change. That you keep a sort of a constant measure and look at making sure that there's sort of parity between how you calibrate those uh, roles um, in terms of the responsibilities and how you value them, and that you're not sort of leveraging. Um, from a value perspective, male roles versus female roles in different ways. Uh, so I, I just think it, it requires a diligent focus um, and an effort on the part of organizations to make sure that they're doing that. But I think the word you use, measurement, yeah. is also key Absolutely. there, is that you have to be able you to gauge that. You have to analyze that. it, and you have to do year it on an year. ongoing basis. It has Absolutely. to be an annual exercise. And then add the transparency element, exactly. and now we've got change happening. Exactly. But I also think, just to plus that a bit, I also think that women need to know their worth yeah. and not be afraid to ask, ask for their worth, that. right? Absolutely. Because I think we oftentimes think of this as a one-sided proposition where the company is only responsible for having the measurement. We're responsible for knowing our worth and knowing how to ask for it. And so I think having that confidence is also a really important piece to that. There, and there, there are you know law changes. I mean, here in California, um, you know, you can no longer sort of ask salary history. There, right. There's things right. that are actually right. working it back to transparency, mm -hmm. working to the advantage of women right. uh, to really be able to do that in a comfortable way without some of the barriers that have existed in the past. So absolutely know your worth and and know sort of the the laws and the regulations and make sure you're using those to your advantage to mm -hmm. to get uh, at at the end of the day what you're what you're valued at. I couldn't agree more. Anybody else? that has a microphone, that has a question. I think we have someone over here. I don't know where the mic is. It'll make its way to you. Hi, 
Hi, uh, my name is Kayla Kilpatrick, and I am a fully employed student. I um, also work here at AEG, so thank you so much for being here. Um, we talked a lot about empathy today, and that's something that I've actually taken strength-based leadership that is my top um, skill. So it's validating to hear that that's something that's going to be so useful in the future. But when you work within an environment that might not be empathetic, how do you share that with your fellow staff, with your own bosses, with your fellow colleagues? What is a way that we can really keep producing that empathy within others that it might not be their strength? How can we share that? Or is there any advice on that? I, sorry. I would say start with the data, yeah. right? Because it's one thing to say we should be empathetic, but it's another thing to say organizations that demonstrate consistent empathy outperform their industry peers by X factor. So at that point, we're all in the game, right? And so instead of taking the perspective of this is a nice thing to do, take the perspective of it's a database must thing to do. I was going to say, I think sometimes talking the talk isn't as effective as walking the talk. We all know that. Right. And so one of the ways that I try to instill empathy into my organization is really through the work that we do. And so we talk about innovation. Innovation is a super important part of how we drive growth at Johnson & Johnson. But when we do that work, I'm always pushing my team in terms of being empathetic to consumers. What's the real problem you're trying to solve that relates to a problem that human beings have that means you're actually doing something that's worthwhile for humanity. And so through getting that concept into the business, you start to actually see more empathetic employees. Yeah. And so I think, again, walking the talk versus talking the talk is often a very effective way. Because at the end of the day, it actually ends up in results. Um, back to your point around the measurement piece. Exactly. I, I think at its core, too, empathy is really just about listening. And so role model that behavior where you're listening to various perspectives and making sure that you are, um, particularly if you see someone who is not being recognized, to make sure that you're sort of bearing witness to their ideas uh, and the suggestions that they, they made. So just making sure you're a person that is truly listening to all perspectives and bringing that together in a very data-based uh, and sort of analytical way as you make decisions is, is the best way to do that. You don't have to sell anybody on that. You're leading with empathy, right? It's just sort of your day-to-day -day behaviors and, and how you interact and bring things together. Up in the mezzanine, anybody up there have a question? Yes, we have two questions up here. Okay. Hi, uh, Crystal Cooper. Um, I work in entertainment and I'm finishing my MBA now. And my question is on being a woman in leadership, how do you signal that you're ready for that next um, shift in your career uh, to upper management or executives? Yeah, I think the key is that you don't signal, you tell them. Exactly. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm saying that in, in, in a, in a lighthearted manner, but that's, I think, been a challenge for women uh, in the past. And so we have to be crystal clear about where we are, what we want, and where we aspire to be, and making sure we're sharing that. That goes back to maybe the previous point I made about knowing who those decision makers are that are in the room that have sort of a say in your future. 
making sure they absolutely 100% understand and know what you aspire to, to, to do because it's, it's not gonna just happen. And even with the best of intentions and really, really critical hard work and overperformance, um, if people don't know where you're trying to get, they can't help you get there. Um, so, so definitely make sure you're not being shy about that. And one of the things I fully agree with that, uh, one of the things that I counsel people on all the time is actually define the role. Exactly. Because until you actually state, I want to be X, right. you actually often won't get the right feedback. You'll get, you know, it's, it's platitudes. As you say, well, I want a more senior role with more experience that focuses here. People don't know what to do with that. Whereas if you say, you know what, I want to lead, I want to be the president of the skin health business in the U.S., then people can say, I'd never even thought of you for that, and can talk to you about would you be ready or wouldn't you be ready, and what would you need to do to get ready? So that's a piece of advice I'll leave all of you. State the role. And be specific. Be specific. Be specific. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Two more questions from the Mez. Hi, my name's Amy, and I'm a current undergraduate student at USC, and um, I was just curious about how you personally hold yourself accountable in terms of maintaining your um, health, your, your mental health, your physical health, and your spiritual health, because I really appreciated how you mentioned um, how it's not always realistic to expect a work-life uh, balance, but instead to aim for a work-life blend. So I, I can talk a little bit. One of the things that I, I learned, um, actually it was after the birth of my first child and it was advice of another working mom, she told me to draw the lines. And if you don't draw the lines, the company won't draw them for you. Work will never draw them for you. There's always more work to be done. There's always more hours you can put in. There's always that meeting you've got to attend. And so drawing the line. So actually, just this year, I'll say this. I've made a personal commitment that I want to start yoga. And so I've drawn the lines. And so two days a week, I block off at 5 o'clock to go to a yoga class. That's drawing the lines. Do a lot of people want to meet with me at 5 o'clock? Yes. Could <laughs> I break that and go meet with them? Absolutely, the pressure is high. But when you draw the line, you know what? We figure out how to do it another way. So that's a small little example, but it's drawing those lines that are super important in getting that work-life blend and that spiritual, mental, physical you know, well-being and, and health that we all need in order to be refreshed and do a great job at work yeah. every day. And it's not a small example, though. I agree with you. Yeah. I literally put mine on my calendar. Yeah. Yes. It's calendared just yes. like any other appointment or yes. meeting, and that's it. It's and done. It. It's in yeah. stone, and it's unless a crisis comes up, yes. and even then I try to avoid it, yeah. it's on the calendar exactly. just like any other meeting. Exactly. I think we have time for one more question. Anyone down here have a question? There's somebody in the back? We have, we have a question here on the okay. floor. Behind you. Hi. Hello? Hello? We can hear you? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, Allison said to raise your hand, so I raised your hand. <laughs> I am Mary Campbell. I am an independent consultant, but I worked on the inside of an organization for 15 years. So my question is really about, I've developed leaders and leadership within organizations for my entire career, and I've been particularly interested in helping young girls and young women develop leadership capacity at a younger age so that when they get into the workforce, they lean in easily and they feel confident about doing so. But in this last year, I've had a, a second revelation, which is really at the other end of a career, and that's women reinventing themselves mid-career. 
uh, we've seen a lot of, there's been a lot of exciting news and movement, and as someone mentioned today, it was equal pay for men and, for women day today. I saw that on the news this morning. But do you have any advice for women who've been in the workforce for many years, and there are many limitless opportunities opening up? They may have grown up in a different world at a different time, but they may have, you know, 15, 20 years left of their career. Uh, any advice in particular for women trying to reinvent themselves in the middle of their professional trajectory? Thank you. I would say change the lens from which you see yourself, right? I think we can get so caught up in seeing ourselves in one myopic way. And so start with, with just taking the, change your lens. Change the perspective that you have on yourself, your value, your contributions, your gifts, the things that you can bring to it, and think broader. I think we just find ourselves oftentimes trapped because we've done something for so long, we feel that's the only thing that we can do. And the other thing I would say is, instead of thinking of our careers as a ladder, think of them as the jungle gym, right? And so if you think of a jungle gym on a playground, you might go left a couple of levels and then right down a couple of levels. And so as long as we can think about a broader perspective, I think it helps us reinvent ourselves. I, I will just piggyback on that, um, it, it, to, to not sort of think in a very defined and narrow way in terms of a role that you have had for many years or even that you want to have, but think about sort of, uh, to Brooke's point, the, the skills that you possess and how those translate. Because in many ways, uh, when we talk about sort of the freelance work in the gig economy, it's becoming a very skills-based economy in the first place, right? So you honing in those things that you just do absolutely wonderfully and can execute very well, I think will lend itself to open up a whole host of opportunities that maybe you hadn't thought about otherwise. I think education can be really powerful. I know Pepperdine caters to executive education. That's right. And at the end of the day, not only myself, but many of my classmates had come back to school specifically for that reason, to reintroduce themselves or reorient themselves to either start a new path, start a new career, launch a new business. It's a powerful way to sort of get in touch with other parts of yourselves right. that you haven't been using or flexing Absolutely. in a way that's daily. Well, we're not done with you guys just yet because we still want to give you a few tokens of our appreciation and take a photo. But can you guys join me in just saying thank you to Britta, Allison, and Delana for this incredible conversation, the future of women in business. Women in Tech is an independently funded project funded by you, the community. So the way that you could support us is by going to patreon.com slash women in tech and making a small contribution. Every little bit counts. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash women in tech. Thank you so much for believing in our vision. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.